This is an ABC podcast. Hey, welcome to Science Friction. It's Natasha Mitchell, joined today by four big thinkers doing what they do best, thinking big about what's next for human civilization. And so for a big injection of hope and possibility, keep listening. We're living through the end of something, who knows what timescale, but the end of something we might call late capitalism, late modernity. This is geographer Professor Leslie Head from the University of Melbourne, author of Love and Grief in the Anthropocene. And we're also living through the beginning of whatever comes after that. The way we diagnose our problem affects our solution. So if we diagnose the problem as the human species, then in my view, that doesn't give us too many places to go because it leads to us trying to get rid of people and get rid of good human influences. And how do we give voice to all the the seeds of the future things, which are, are the way we're going to get through this? Capitalism may be a cul-de-sac in human development and a very dangerous one. If it becomes a highway, we're destroying ourselves. People latch on that. As soon as you mentioned capitalism in a negative way, people accuse you of being a communist. This is Ewan Bunurong and Tasmanian man Bruce Pascoe, author of the acclaimed book Dark Emu, which puts Aboriginal people right at the centre of the birth of farming and agriculture, so challenging hunter-gatherer tropes. Communists drain the Aral Sea one of the great environmental disasters of the last 100 years or so. So we can't rely on the communist mind to come up with a solution to save people. We need to have a different philosophy. I mean, there's a a wonderful quote about kind of, you know, a state of emergency is always a state of emergence as well. This is writer James Bradley, author of the environmental science fiction classics, Ghost Species and Clade. One of the things I would say about kind of questions of resilience, if you look back in history to something like the Little Ice Age, where you get this kind of lowering of global temperatures, different countries and different societies reacted in different ways. Some did well, some did badly you saw a kind of transformation of the societies take place as well. So societies were altered by that, but they responded to it in different ways. Amazing things came out of the pandemic. And from the pandemic frontline, emergency physician Dr Michelle Johnston is author of the novel Dustfall, and out soon is Tiny Uncertain Miracles. In Perth, when it all first started, our government housed, paid for hotel rooms for every homeless person We were brought to our knees with joy, what we could do as a community by giving people housing. And we did it in a day and it was amazing. I shared a stage with these four brilliant minds at the recent Quantum Words Festival in Perth, this fabulous, provocative festival of science, creativity and wonder. And really, I reckon these three themes distill so much about human intelligence, our capacity to build civilizations, to learn about the world and ourselves in it, and to appreciate the beauty of nature. But we're also excruciatingly dumb, aren't we? We do harm to each other. We seem hell-bent on stripping bare the planet that feeds us. War, global warming, poverty, plagues, pollution. We are as wicked as we are wonderful. 
So can we harness the best things about us to change the world? For Bruce Pascoe, solving the conflicts and chaos of the present starts with learning from the past. Not all humans on Earth are inclined towards war as a solution. Aboriginal people came up with a system which eschewed war. It didn't eschew violence, it didn't eschew bad temper, it didn't eschew greed, but it condemned greed, condemned large-scale violence, and it prohibited war for land. And I think it's the only culture on earth that has done that or been able to do it. Whether or not it was isolation that allowed Australian Aboriginal people time to work out a system where war wasn't a component, I don't know. You know, I'm feeling frustrated in this last 70 years that if anyone attacks capitalism or anyone attacks the Western world, it is seen as a a personal indictment, and it's not. We're humans, and I, I love humans. We're very complicated intelligent, compassionate, brutal, sadistic people. How do we manage that? And if we can manage it without war, it gives us time to consider things and to consider each other and our our needs. This is one of our big challenges now is to examine the human soul. Oh, there's so much more to talk about there. And Michelle Johnson, you're right at a frontier at the moment in healthcare that has just lived through and is living through this extraordinary moment in in civilizational history, a pandemic, a global pandemic. Which has taken its toll. So I guess I'm coming at this from, uh, uh, perhaps going to bring it down to something more concrete, individual, the crumbling health service. And if I may illustrate it by, when we fill out death certificates, there's a very particular way we do it. We're asked what the cause of death was, but then underneath, well, what was the cause of that? Well, what was the cause of that? And we have to get to about four lines. It's actually very difficult to do. And unlike the conspiracy theorists say, we're not paid to do to write uh, death certificates. They are in the UK. It's called um, Ash Cash, but we don't have that here. Um, but I, I use that as an illustration. The whole system is crumbling. It is on the precipice. And the reason we have too many patients in the emergency department, oh, is because there are patients in the emergency department who do not need to be there. Why? Well, that's when you start getting broader and broader, like the child, like a toddler. Well, why? We'll end up coming to this, the bigger late stage capitalism and, and climate change, etc. There's no, we can't get patients out the back end of the hospital because there's no, we've lost um, the nuclear family. People don't have the, their elders with them in the family. There's not enough nursing homes or aged care. On the other side, there's too many patients coming in. There's poor health literacy. There's not enough GPs. GPs aren't remunerated for what they do. They don't want to work in rural areas. You can just go on and on like ripples in a pond mm. until you eventually get to late stage capitalism but there is no question we have a crystal ball and we can see what is happening in the US and the UK with health services and they are in a parlous state we think ours is bad and it is but theirs are so much worse. So what's the revolution that you're calling for? I think one of the most fundamental things we can do is get the choices back in the hands of the community. It is your health service. Has the pandemic offered a portal into possible solutions? Amazing things came out of the pandemic. Collegiality about sharing knowledge. You know the genomic sequencing of of the coronavirus was done in a weekend once China released the DNA 
day. And the, those vaccines were made so quickly. There was huge innovations done by the people on the ground, which were phenomenal and showed us exactly what we can do Building on a on big 30 scale. years of science. But Built yeah. on 30 years of science, absolutely. But then there was the will to do it. Leslie... You talk about we're concerned about scarcity and the scarcity of resources, but you also talk about we need to shift our relationship to abundance. What do you mean by that? You know, for most of my professional life, we've been taught that the problem's going to be that we're going to run out of things, peak oil and peak whatever. But we know now that we need to keep something like two-thirds of the oil and gas and fossil fuel reserves that we know about have to stay in the ground to avoid one and a half degrees of warming. So it's not that we're going to run out of stuff, it's that we've got all this stuff that a lot of forces want to use, but how do we, how do we restrain ourselves from, from using it? Bruce, you talk about, thinking about abundance, you, you talk about a, a kind of true conservatism. What does that embody for you in your thinking and in your work now running a farm, Yambara in East Gippsland, tr- trying to put, really actively put into practice hope, uh, mm. but also many of the ideas that you explored in Dark Emu about thousands of years of land management practices that were co-designed with the landscape that we mm. live in. Aboriginal people had a long time to look at the land and look at themselves and work out solutions. There were probably mistakes uh, made and readjustments, but because of that time looking at the land, um, how climates changed, people changed, the ability of humans to make things changed, all of that change was witnessed and solutions progressively arrived at to control change. When I went to school, I was told that Aboriginal people had been in Australia for 5,000 years. Every five years after that, it increased by 20,000 years. That kind of conservatism frustrates me. But I want a really true conservatism, which I believe was practised by Aboriginal people. We were given two things. We were given the rock and the tree. Everything we want as humans, comes from the the rock and the tree. You can get oil from the rock, fibre from the tree, but they were given to you not to use but to look after. And the the law is about looking after those things. We have to have that true conservatism. But Mm. I've read a lot of what Leslie has written, but I'd like to ask you, Mm. are are there too many people? Uh Would, would, Would the Aboriginal system have broken down under weight of numbers? The whole question of overpopulation leads to misunderstanding about the causes of of the problem. So certainly population is one of the variables in the equation. But usually when people say, are there too many people, they mean, are there too many black and brown people? And so the whole overpopulation (laughs) argument, it connects too quickly, I think, to racist responses. Population is certainly part of the issue. uh, But when we look at the historical evidence and the geological evidence now for when the key changes uh, that contribute to the increase in emissions happened, the key time frame that they talk about now is 1492 and the colonisation of the Americas. So it's very, very much tied into this link between capital accumulation and colonisation. And the other point I was going to make was that Uh, Since World War II, the increase in emissions has accelerated much more quickly than the increase in population. So it's a a consumption increase. So 
the answer to that question is, well, what are you going to do about it? Are we going to kill people? Are we going to let people die? And mm. so, um, yeah. I think we, if we could extract culture and race from the argument and just look at numbers and wonder if this is the best way for humans to go. To have an ever-increasing population, is that ever-increasing population simply locked in step with <laughs> gross national product mm. and the needs of capitalism? Was it inevitable? To have that kind of discussion, I think, would be really fruitful. Because what you said about, you know, we, we house the homeless in a day, it shows that we can do it. Mm. We can answer these questions for ourselves, probably as long as the politicians are extracted from the argument for a little while and then given credit for the solution. Um, yeah. Because that will encourage them That's to right. allow... <laughs> experts to arrive at, at those decisions. But look, I, I think humans are fascinating, yeah. frustrating and fascinating. I have hope, but then again, I have to, because I've got four grandkids, each of them different, each of them eager yeah. to, to have a go. And when you talk to those kids about these problems, you know, they've got ideas. Mm. And so we might feel bleak, but we must never give up. If we give up, and become gloomy, we guarantee our demise. James Bradley, your books have just been brilliant thought experiments in the way in which science and technology both are, and human hubris are kind of part of the problem but also potentially part of the solution, part of the big machine of destruction, but they are also our, our capacity to innovate and solve our way out of big, vast conundrums and genetically engineered trees that soak up more carbon. And, you know, as, as you're imagining those narratives, do you have in your mind what a positive sense of progress, you know, we're obsessed with this idea of progress, what it looks like? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that one of the things that I think needs to happen is we need to accept that, as we were saying before, the world we're in is over. The world cannot continue in the way it is. You know, it is changing. And the kind of nature of the kind of environmental crisis that we're in, we're heading into a very unstable and very frightening and very transformative kind of moment. That's both a frightening thing, but it's also a kind of really exciting thing because it means that we have the space to make new choices about how the world works. You want to have a world that's environmentally sustainable. You need to have a world that is economically just. You know, there's a wonderful line in Barry Lopez's last book and he's, he looks at, he's sitting in a room and he looks at the people and he thinks, all I want is for everyone in here to make it through what's coming. And it seems to me that's a really good place to start this conversation. Yeah, so obviously technology is a really good part of it, but it's not just technology in the form of batteries and Silicon Valley developing apps to help mm. us manage things. And some of that stuff is clearly part of what's going, going to help. But it's also technologies like better farming technology, which Bruce is working on. It's also technologies like social technologies around education for women, you know, developing microfinance. It's, you know, these things we don't necessarily think about as technologies, but they're kind of social technologies. You know, things that will allow us to kind of make things work better and, and more justly and move away from a completely kind of extractive relationship with the world. Yeah, that really shift our relationship with each other and shift hierarchies of power. Yeah. It seems that so much 
flows on from people hanging on to particular understandings of power. You know, uh, I must own, I must conquer, I must make profit. Uh, I am the underling, I am the worker. You know, those sort of relational dynamics are really bizarre and they're not sustainable. Yeah, they're not. You know, and once you've done that sum in your head, once you've thought this is not sustainable, it has to change, you know, change is coming, like whether you want it or not. And we can choose to have some agency over that process of change or we can choose to get kind of run over by it. My feeling is that we'll choose to have agency. I mean, I think all of the history shows that societies are adaptive, they are dynamic. I mean, I often get very depressed about how slowly we're changing, but the reality is societies change. And we've seen, we've seen disaster after disaster now in Australia and the experience has not been that people murdered each other and hurt each other. The experience has been that people helped each other. You know, if you're looking for something to be hopeful about, that's something to be hopeful about. Oh, I drew incredible, as a Victorian, I drew incredible hope, you know, despite all the kind of rhetoric in the national press, just looking at what people were doing to support each other through the last couple of years. Michelle, as you're listening to this, I mean, medicine is an interesting domain because it's increasingly becoming technologised, but at its core... The revolution comes from how people relate to each other, as I think is, is the theme for today, really. And as you're listening to this, I mean, there's been all sorts of promise. The Human Genome Project is going to save us. It's going to bring us personalised medicine. We'll just turn up to our doctor with our genome mapped on a little chip or whatever. And well, I think <laughs> herein, we'll be fixed. Is, herein is the rub. As I'm listening to both Bruce and Leslie talk about population being one of the big issues, I'm, I've just been talking about the fact that our role is to save lives wherever possible possible to extend lives, individual lives. That's that's our bag. And that's somewhat against the grain. That's the juxtaposition we need to get our heads around because it's the individual versus the community or, or the bigger picture. For example, I was talking before about communities being given agency, being able to choose where they want their money. Do you want to spend $50,000 on an 80-year-old who's got a cancer who may only live for another six months. And as a community, you say, no, well, that doesn't sound right. But if it was your mother, you would say yes. That if we're talking about, well, my little tribe, am I going to choose them to be safe over someone I can't see in a, in a further land, perhaps a different colour than me, a different, different race, someone I don't know about, the people in Pakistan. We do have some conflict sometimes. It's very hard to be completely egalitarian from a global point of view. Um, people in Australia seem to really struggle with the notion of having to give up something in order to enable equity. We see it in the superannuation debates and the people don't want to lose their share portfolio so that they can be comfortable in their retirement and if it meant increasing housing equity in Australia and what well, a foundational issue. did we an election issue. on franking credits? We, well, apparently we did. I'm still sort yes. of reeling from that situation. Mm. Don't we all care about the next generation and the generations after so that? So the question is, how do we really face those issues so that we can look after our own and the greater the greater good. What's your thought about that, Bruce? Uh, I was thinking about Gina Reinhardt. Um, <laughs> of course you were. <laughs> Don't we all? I, I, yeah, I, I, when this country wanted to get a return on the extraction of minerals from the country, um, a woman who's never seen a, a plastic helmet in her life put one on Australia caved in. Um, the Australian voter uh, went with her, uh, not with a totally rational proposal put forward about a mining tax. And it was, we, we have to pay our way. 
as corporation and, and as individuals. Why is so much of Australia's destiny held by people who don't love us? Australians are, are craven, craven and racist. We don't need to be because we are, we are human and we have in our essence an, a, a want for fairness. It is in our gut and in our mind. We have this want for fairness. We just don't do enough of it. Mm. I, want to, I want to ask each of you, though, because we want to send people away feeling um, <laughs> like they are able to mm. participate in the next step forward, whatever forward might be. But what is it in your life that fills you up, that gives you moments of hope and, and possibility? Bruce? My culture, because that culture is not extractive. All, all our stories are based on controlling human bad behaviour. Um, last weekend, I was in the mountains, we were talking about the anger of men, propensity of men to go to war and uh, fight each other, male ego and how to handle it. That gives me hope because it's possible for humans to come up with solutions. Um, it gives me great hope that the whale is a socialist because when, during sea level rise, and people losing vast areas of land off um, eastern Tasmania was bad enough, but the northwest corner of Western Australia must have been horrific. Thousands of clan groups must have lost land. But what the whale did, we know the whale did it in Tasmania. We suspect the whale did it in Western Australia up northwest. We know that they did it at Margaret River. The whale, being a land mammal, was in conversation with humans and vice versa. And the whale said to the humans, when you're losing your land, come with me, I will show you, I will take you to dry land. But when you get to that dry land, literally climbing the mountains to get away from the water, when you climb that land, you'll meet cousins you haven't met yet. Mm. And you are gonna be asking them to share their land. They will allow you to share their land. You have to be on your best behavior. They will give but you, you have to be really decent. So it, it's mm. the antithesis of war. It's the sharing. And that sharing has come and gone. You know, sometimes land is revealed. People can go back out onto the, the continental shelf. But that gives me hope. Mm. If humans can think of a solution like that, of good behaviour, mm. you know, walking around this suburb and seeing so many homeless people, seeing the effects of mental ill health um, but we can say, oh, no, 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 look, uh, sorry, didn't mean to do that. Come in here, we've got a house for you. It's got a hot shower and in the kitchen you'll find milk and wheat bix you know. We can do it, Yeah. you know. And why, the fact that we don't do it is because uh, we're not listening to the whale. Michelle, what gives you hope? Uh, what fills you up? What I see in people's darkest hours when things are at their worst individually is love. Is love, the strength and the power of love of humans for each other, even when things are terrible, gives me joy and it gives me absolute, utter hope. James, what fills you up um, to write your post-apocalyptic <laughs> fiction? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you know... What's coming is going to be, it's going to be really messy and it's going to be really hard. But I also think life is a kind of gift. And, you know, I wouldn't be dead for quids. What will get us through at a personal level is kind of care and love and learning 
to look after the people around us. And if that's how I have to spend the last 25 or 30 years of my life, let's hope it's the 30, um, <laughs> that sounds all right to me, even if the world around is really hard. I mean, I think the lesson of the last couple of years has been both good and bad. It's been that, like, people mm. look after each other. I think one of the problems is, though, that over time that starts to fray, and we've seen that. And what we need to do is to be able to invest in the structures that let us do that. So, I mean, if you look for what fills you up, it's kind of the people around you, you know, and, it, and it's the world. I mean, it's like, I have a magpie that comes to visit all the time. I love my magpie. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, you know, that, and that's words a, and puppy dogs yeah. and... <laughs> and music. And the and wattle in winter and yeah. all those things. And just people. People are wonderful. Leslie. Well, what all them said <laughs> as well. What um, all them said. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just that idea that it's life is an incredible privilege. And, but I also think it helps to think beyond your own lifetime, to think my lifetime is not the... Nothing says that's the solutions time frame. These are, are longer-term issues and things will go on once I've become an ancestor. Thank you, Bruce Pascoe, Leslie Head, James Bradley and Michelle Johnston. And thank you all for being part of the festival. Cheers. I hope that gets you thinking. Thanks to Jane McCready and Sharon Flindell from the Quantum Words Festival. You can check out the Science Friction website for more info. Just search Science Friction and ABC. Tell your friends about the podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. And thanks to sound engineer David LeMay. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.